If you're anything like me, COVID-19's probably been keeping you up at night, making you anxious, to the coronavirus and a new on edge. It's predicting up to 200,000 deaths in the U.S. by Labor Day. As our nation marks the third highest single-day death toll since May, the COVID For some, staying at home and social distancing means you're not taking such good care of your health. You're less active. I've seen a lot of people struggle with weight gain. And exercise habits were rattled. Drinking more. Alcohol sales are up dramatically. Saying she's already seen more hospital detox days. People may stop. We've already seen an impressive onslaught of research that indicates patients are also less likely to seek medical attention for real problems. People are dying of heart attacks and strokes because they're so frightened about catching coronavirus that they're avoiding going to hospital when they should. And if you're infected with the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, there's a broad spectrum of systemic and neurologic consequences of the coronavirus disease, COVID-19. Confusion, encephalopathy, strokes, encephalitis, and other brain disorders. Just this past month, a case series was published in the Green Journal out of Madrid. Three patients who had COVID-19 who developed generalized whole-body jerking movements, myoclonus, the authors speculated that their condition was due to a para-infectious inflammatory mechanism, not unlike what we've seen from a rare complication of measles, the subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, or also what we've seen as a direct consequence of West Nile or neurosyphilis, the great mimicker, or even what we see in acute renal failure, which also accompanies severe cases of COVID-19. But the myoclonus that's been seen with COVID-19, the myoclonus that was reported in the literature and what we've seen anecdotally, is severe myoclonus. Uh, those patients that have it, you can't, you can't possibly miss it, and it's in their face, it's in their neck, their arms, their legs, their trunk. Really, really uncontrollable jerking movements. And unfortunately, you know, we're, we're seeing it in those patients that get the particularly sick uh, manifestations of COVID. All these infectious and para-infectious causes of myoclonus are really interesting. Infections due to things like the novel coronavirus, but in the grand scheme of things, they are quite rare causes of myoclonus. And when you do see a patient with myoclonus, your first thought should not be, oh my God, do they have COVID-19? There's a whole list of considerations to check off before you immediately blame every new problem on the virus that's turned your world upside down. Because some of these other conditions, you won't want to miss either. Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, and this week on the program, myoclonus and the range of neurological conditions that are associated with it. Now, I'll be honest, myoclonus can be a completely benign thing. Myoclonus is not as uncommon as we think. A leg jerk during sleep, a hiccup. But it can also be a clinical indicator of something much more severe. Myoclonus is actually very common in neurodegenerative disease. There are innumerable, extraordinarily rare causes of myoclonus, like Otahara syndrome, a severe infantile myoclonic epilepsy, and neuronal ceroid lipofusionosis, but many conditions that you'll encounter in your own practice that are much more common. Kidney failure, drug toxicity, and neurodegenerative conditions. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. John Cavanis, a movement disorder specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Hello. Hello, Dr. Cavanis. Can you hear me okay? Fortunately for us, Dr. Cavanis is not new to podcasts and medical education, having already done several before joining me via Zoom. Before, I forget how many have been live. I mean, I think they're mostly recorded. 
And after my interview with Dr. Cavanis on the intricacies of myoclonus, you should feel more comfortable working up a patient with these abnormal body movements. Stay with us. My guest on the program today is Dr. John Cavanis. Hi, my name is Dr. John Cavanis. I am a tertiary care uh, neurologist in the Southwest. I uh, specialize in movement disorders. Dr. Cavanis has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles, ranging from topics of cognition, neuropathology and dementia syndromes, and electroencephalography. But today, we'll be discussing myoclonus. Let's start by summarizing what it is and what it isn't. And for me, it's it, sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish myoclonus from other abnormal movements like tremors or asterixis, sometimes ballistic movements, sometimes it can even be functional. You know, how would you describe myoclonus? Um, it is a jerk. And by saying it's a, a movement jerk, uh, we of course mean that it's a phasic movement or it's a ballistic movement. But as far as properly labeling myoclonus as the movement disorder, it even goes farther, I think, than the word jerk. Myoclonus is actually the briefest jerk uh, that we have in, in abnormal movements or, or normal movements for that matter. Meaning that, you know, there's some jerks that occur in dystonia or chorea. And of course, we do them naturally during the day. But myoclonus is so sudden and so brief, it's the briefest of all, all the jerks that we know of. Its brevity and its amplitude are its most defining features. And so it's even sudden or more brief than a, than a tick or even sudden more brief than a dystonic jerk. With myoclonus, the muscles involved can be proximal or they can be distal, and they occur as singular events, as opposed to tremor, which can be more continuous and rhythmic. And myoclonus has a much larger amplitude than fasciculations, which are activations of the individual muscle fibers beneath the skin. But myoclonus has a smaller amplitude than that of chorea or bilismus. And unlike these other abnormal movements, Myoclonus can originate practically anywhere in the nervous system, which is what makes the workup for myoclonus so interesting and the differential so extensive. It originates in the central nervous system most commonly. Uh, rarely, it also occurs from a peripheral nerve lesion that, as a result of that, there's been reorganization in, in central movement circuits such that it's creating the jerk. But if you, if you want to say that myoclonus uh, arises from the central nervous system, you'd be right over 99% of the time. Movement disorder experts like Dr. Cavanis characterize myoclonus as generalized, segmental, or focal. It should be characterized as spontaneous or action-induced and static versus progressive. Based on these features, you can really narrow down your differential diagnosis. A static, spontaneous focal myoclonus, like a hiccup... It's almost always benign. However, if the myoclonus becomes progressive and it may be generalized, then one group of conditions you might consider would be the progressive myoclonic encephalopathies, which are typically disorders of metabolism, often associated with ataxia and dementia, myoclonic epilepsy with red ragged fibers, Lafora body disease, sialidosis, crab A. Or maybe the myoclonus is action-induced, as in patients who have Parkinson's disease who've just taken their levodopa. Other action-induced myoclonic disorders would be metabolic disturbances like renal failure, but they're also seen in the cortical basal syndrome, multiple system atrophy, and Lance Adams post-hypoxic syndrome. So evaluating the myoclonus in the context of the patient's history 
or other neurologic exam findings is integral to uncovering the diagnosis. But I think there are other useful ways to distinguish them is that if you're going to have a dystonic jerk, you're also going to have dystonia. So the dystonic jerk is a part of a dystonic you know, movement syndrome, if you will, that also has you know, abnormal posturing. Characterized by the simultaneous contraction of flexor and extensor muscle groups. Sustained movements, you know, in addition to uh, a dystonic jerk. And these movements are easily distinguished from a tick. Those are, are movements that happen because of a psychological urge, and, and once they're performed, there, there is relief. A shoulder shrug, throat clearing, a leg movement, or particularly a vocal sound, should clue you into it being a tick rather than a myoclonic movement. So in addition to ticks not being quite as brief, you also have that other history associated with it that helps you distinguish between the two. To me, when I think about myoclonus, it's kind of like the altered mental status for movement disorders. Uh, it can be due to almost anything, and it could be completely benign, or it could be something very serious. And a lot of your research relates to neurodegenerative conditions. Can you give us a sense as to the spectrum of disorders that are associated with myoclonus? Um, I actually think you, you conceptualize it actually fairly well. Uh, if you look at a list of causes of myoclonus or in our popular so-called clinical classification, there's one category that's called symptomatic myoclonus. You can think of it as secondary myoclonus, myoclonus that's secondary to either a neurological or medical disorder. So if you open any textbook of medicine and went through all the categories of pathophysiology, whether it's, you know, vascular neoplastic, metabolic, uh, inherited or acquired, or, you know, myoclonus would, would be mentioned in, in, in all those. So, so you're right, a very diverse set of causes in terms of it maybe being a part of another disorder. Now, if, if I can go on a little bit about, you know, other categories of myoclonus from the cause or etiology point of view, we often start with what we call physiological myoclonus, you know, and that can be just kind of somebody sneaks up behind you trying to play a joke on you and startles you. And, it, you know, and you go like this, that that is considered myoclonus It's actually extremely brief in terms of being a jerk, but it's normal. So it, 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 it's, it's physiologic. And this first category of myoclonus, this perfectly benign type of movement process is incredibly common. Hiccups, sneezes, hypnic jerks of the legs or the arms as someone's falling asleep. Usually these don't pretend a more severe neurologic problem, especially if they're non-progressive. The patient's exam should be benign. There's no sign of ataxia, no cognitive impairment. And if there is, you should be thinking about the pathologic etiologies of myoclonus, which is a second main category. The second big category is what we call essential myoclonus, which means, like, strictly speaking, it's pathologic but you just have the myoclonus and disorder. And there's a famous group of um, disorders in which we have essential myoclonus. Essential myoclonus encompasses rare hereditary conditions in which the myoclonus is the principal component of the condition, like myoclonus dystonia, which is an autosomal dominant condition due to a mutation in the DYT11 gene. And again, these categories, physiologic myoclonus and essential myoclonus, are grouped under the umbrella of a primary myoclonic disorder to be distinguished from a secondary myoclonus, which can be related to drug toxicity, prion disease, epileptic conditions, and so forth. 
much akin to essential hypertension, where you're just talking about a, a primary myoclonic disorder. As if it were a primary disorder of blood pressure control. Then the next category is called uh, epileptic myoclonus. Which again is a primary myoclonic disorder and is pathologic, unlike physiologic myoclonus. And in that context, the myoclonus is part of the seizure disorder. So you have the seizure disorder that's already diagnosed, which is juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Benign Rolandic epilepsy. Or Adsant seizures. Odahara, Dravet, West syndrome. Something like that. And myoclonus is, is simply a part of that. So you have physiological myoclonus, category one, category two, essential myoclonus, category three, epileptic myoclonus, and then category four, secondary myoclonus. And that's the large category that you refer to that can be secondary to almost any category of disease. Now that we've established a framework for myoclonus, recognizing it can be a primary or a secondary process, most often it's secondary, next you might think about the secondary causes. Meds and metabolism is a good mnemonic that I use. You have to ask about medication. Medications are not an uncommon cause of, of myoclonus. And the med list is quite long. In an inpatient setting, opioids are a common culprit. Narcotics. But also toxic doses of benzos, SSRIs, lithium, and some very specific anti-epileptics, lamotrigine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, gabapentin, are all drugs to think about. Alcohol, when abused chronically or in states of withdrawal, can cause myoclonus in addition to the action tremor. Antiarrhythmia medications. Sodium channel blockers like amiodarone and flecainide, and calcium channel blockers like diltiazem, and definitely antibiotics. Particularly in the hospital setting, antibiotics are a common medication cause of myoclonus. At Cooper, we've seen almost half a dozen cases of iphosphamide-associated myoclonus this year, which is associated with encephalopathy in our cancer population. And this is a unique toxicity in that it has a very targeted antidote, methylene blue. Then we have the metabolic disorders, post-hypoxic myoclonus, the well-known Lance Adams syndrome, hepatic or renal failure, with a number of peculiar associations with renal failure actually, azotemia or rapid shifts in electrolytes during dialysis can induce myoclonus. There's also the action myoclonus renal failure syndrome, which typically begins in teenage years or early 20s, and it's associated with arresting myoclonus as well as myoclonus induced by small fine movements like handwriting. Hyponatremia can cause myoclonus, hypoglycemia, hyperthyroidism, and Hashimoto's encephalopathy can do it too. There's, you know, first a, a basic set of tests that anybody with myoclonus you know, should have. So ruling these conditions out with a comprehensive metabolic panel. Calcium and magnesium included. And thyroid function tests. B12. These are a good start for most patients after you've excluded drug-induced myoclonus. Also, everybody with, you know, myoclonus you know, should get an EEG. To rule out an associated epileptic condition. Even if it's being recorded when epilepsy symptoms aren't happening. You see an interictal spike or you see a subclinical generalized spike in wave discharges. An MRI of the brain might also be helpful for most patients who have myoclonus. Uh, I get routinely as a first tier of testing in, in myoclonus. You want to see, you know, is there cerebellar pathology? As you might see in the SCAS, an MSA, chronic alcohol abuse or perineoplastic cerebellar degeneration. You know, 
is there cortical atrophy? Is the cortical atrophy the focal? As you might see with cortical basal degeneration, with prominent atrophy of the superior parietal lobule. Uh, all these things then help you, you know, zero in on, on what, the, uh, what the cause might be. Now, if the myoclonus was subacute and you're concerned about an infectious or inflammatory disorder, like CJD, you know, doing a spinal pap uh, would be very appropriate. In order to send the RT quick and a basic CSF profile. If the person is over the age of 50, you know, just my personal habit, but I also will get perineoplastic antibodies. Antibodies to RI, HU, MA, or to the NMDA receptor, which have been associated with some cases of opsoclonus myoclonus ataxia, or antibodies to GAD, GABA, or amphiphysin, which we see in stiff person syndrome with a stimulus-induced myoclonus. These antibodies can all be sent from the serum, with the exception of NMDA antibodies, which should be sent from the serum and from the CSF. The antibodies, and you find you know something uh, like a, a voltage-gated casting channel antibody, uh, or you get you know one of the cerebellar antibodies. Next, what is the temporal course of the movements? Dr. Cavanis again. Then the next thing to go into is really kind of trying to categorize the, the history of, of the disease process itself. Did it come on very slowly? Did it come on suddenly? Did it come on you know, subacutely? Because again, myoclonus can be uh, secondary to a variety of different causes. So if you have a condition that comes on subacutely, you know, within a day or so, then that kind of pattern frequently goes with inflammatory neurological disease or infectious neurological disease. As in HSV or post-infectious encephalitis. And so you have to be thinking of those categories of disease uh, of, um, being the cause of the myoclonus. Another example, if you have myoclonus that comes on over a year or two, you know, or several months, uh, then you're talking about a chronic history that's when you begin to think of neurodegenerative disease. Meaning conditions like Parkinson's, Huntington's, CBD, MSA, neurodegeneration with brain iron accumulation. Or if it's a younger patient, you might think of Wilson's, or perhaps one of the spinocerebellar ataxias. Because that's how those disease processes, you know, present themselves. So those historical details are very important. Then, yes, you got to ask about, you know, family history. You have to ask about other medical problems. So in, in many ways, it's a very typical, comprehensive you know, history and physical, but just with attention being paid to the myoclonus. Of the many causes of myoclonus, Dr. Kavanis has particular expertise in myoclonus associated with neurodegenerative conditions. So we talked about that next. First of all, uh, myoclonus is actually very common in neurodegenerative disease, and it's even more common if you try to detect small amplitude myoclonus. So when you observe the patient, when you observe the patient with arms outstretched, being very careful to know, you know, if there are movements in the fingers or small movements of the hands, you know, are they rhythmic and therefore we would call it tremor or is there some irregularity and perhaps it's, you know, it's small myoclonus. When you start seeing large myoclonus, you know, that's a little bit more you know, differentiated. So let's say you have a patient with dementia 
And if the patient has dementia, well, you know, there's a large differential diagnosis even among neurodegenerative diseases with that. So let's first go with Alzheimer's disease or just Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Really, it's it's the size of the myoclonus and Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease that are more suggestive for it. You don't often see the large amplitude, the large amplitude body jerks that we're so used to seeing, unfortunately, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease in Alzheimer's disease. You will see a lot in Alzheimer's disease of the small amplitude action-induced myoclonus. Which is why neurologists like Dr. Cavanis will test a patient's handwriting to see if that will trigger the sudden movements. But Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease has larger myoclonus at rest. It has more body-wide myoclonus, and so that can at least guide your differential diagnosis to some extent. Now, let's also give another common example is, you know, is it Parkinson's disease or, or is it diffuse Lewy body disease? Because making this differentiation could give you some insights into how responsive the patient would be to a dopaminergic drug. If you have myoclonus that is pretty small and actually induced, that's not uncommon in Parkinson's disease. But we know from, from studies that the myoclonus in diffuse Lewy body disease is is much more gross, it's much larger, and is much more commonly at rest, whereas the myoclonus of Parkinson's disease is not very common at rest. And I don't think that Dr. Cavanis would expect you to take away from this program how to distinguish the myoclonus of Alzheimer's disease from CJD, or the myoclonus of Parkinson's disease from Lewy body dementia. What's more important, at least for me, is knowing that there can be a clinical difference in the features of the myoclonus in these various syndromes and doing the things that you can to better characterize what they are so you can look them up later. Are the movements focal or generalized, intermittent and non-progressive, or are they building up over time? Are they large in amplitude or small and action-induced? You know, sometimes the amplitude of the myoclonus can give you a clue there. In the last minute, before we wrap up the program, just a quick word on the management of myoclonus as a symptom. There are several approaches to treatment, and obviously the most important thing is that you've addressed the underlying cause. You've treated the uremia. You've used aggressive immunomodulatory therapies for the NMDA receptor encephalitis. And only after you've recognized the cause and you're trying to manage that proximal issue, then you can consider supportive treatments. Pharmacologic agents like levetiracetam, valproic acid, and clonazepam these can be used to suppress the cortical and subcortical causes of myoclonus. For segmental myoclonus, which you could see after a stroke or demyelinating disease, botulinum toxin injections could be considered. Interestingly, while some antiepileptics work to suppress myoclonus, drugs like phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine may paradoxically worsen a patient's myoclonic jerks. And they're some of the causes of myoclonus that ought to be considered when working up a patient with these abnormal movements. So lots covered today, let's recap. Myoclonus is one of the briefest, if not the briefest abnormal movement, and it can originate almost anywhere in the central and the peripheral nervous system. It can be physiologic, as in the case of hypnic jerks, or an enhanced startle in response to a frightening stimulus, or it can be pathophysiologic. And of the pathophysiologic causes, there are primary and secondary conditions to consider. 
Primary myoclonic disorders would be disorders like essential myoclonus dystonia, which is a genetic condition associated with the DYT11 gene. And secondary myoclonus can refer to any condition in which the myoclonus were a secondary component to that disorder. These could include epileptic conditions like JME, a variety of drug toxicities, lithium, alcohol, opioids, various metabolic disorders such as renal or hepatic failure, anoxic brain injury, neurodegenerative conditions in the right context, conditions like Alzheimer's disease, MSA, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body disease, and so many other conditions that we really didn't have the time to discuss. So like I mentioned earlier, myoclonus is like the altered mental status of the movement disorder world. It can be due to almost anything, or it can mean nothing at all, like hiccups for most people. So it's just so important that these patients be evaluated thoroughly for their associated conditions and you get that comprehensive history and exam. You review the medications and the comorbid conditions that the myoclonus could be tied to so you can contextualize this abnormal movement based on all these associated factors. Dr. Kavanis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Dr. John Kavanis. Friendly reminder, Brainwaves is just a podcast. It is intended for medical education only and should not be used for routine clinical decision making. This week's episode of the Brainwaves podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, with the help of Dr. Kavanis. Our show is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with music courtesy of Kevin McLeod, Ease Jammy Jams, and Shane Ivers tracks, Ending and What's the Angle, which can be found at silvermansound.com. Our theme song was composed by Jimothy Dalton. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information on what was discussed on the show, as always, please take a look at our show notes for the references to the highest yield material on the topics, and follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon. Thank you.